In the spring of 1883, a group of very dangerous men began gathering outside of Dodge City, Kansas. Men with names like Wyatt Earp, Bat Masterson, Shotgun Collins, and Doc Holliday. Killers, all of them. Men familiar with the weight of a revolver in hand and the smell of black powder smoke. They gathered to rally around one man, their compadre who had recently been forced out of town by a crooked mayor and a small army of vigilantes. That man's name was Luke Short, a cowboy turned scout turned gambler who earned himself quite the reputation as a man handy with the iron. What events transpired that forced Luke out of the rough cow town of Dodge City? How did he become friends with the likes of Wyatt Earp? How short was Luke Short anyway? And is it true that if you don't use it, you'll lose it? Find out all this and more on this newest, if you're going to get into a gunfight, make damn sure you shoot first edition of Bloody Beaver Podcast. What's up, y'all? Welcome to Bloody Beaver Podcast. My name's Josh, and I'm the captain of this sinking ship. Oh, and she's a sinking fast, so let's get right down to the topic at hand. Luke Lamar Short was born in Polk County, Arkansas on January 22, 1854. His father, Josiah, was a farmer who, along with Luke's mom, Hetty, went and moved the whole family down to Texas sometime before 1860. Not sure of the exact date, but by 1860, the Short family was already living in Montague County, way up north, just shy of the Red River, on the border of what was, at the time, known as Indian Territory, what we now call Oklahoma. Ugh, gross. In 1862, an eight-year-old Luke Short witnessed something that I'm 100% sure nobody listening to this podcast has ever witnessed, his father being attacked by a party of Comanche warriors right there in the front yard. Although being wounded by both arrows and lances, Josiah was able to fight off the attackers, due in no small part to the actions of Luke and his brother, who were able to drag a large rifle out to aid their pops. This is such a fascinating time in history to me. You know, you're a farmer with a wife and several young children, Lots of mouths to feed, living on the mercy of the weather. It's a hard job, even nowadays. You know, hoping you get enough rain, but not too much rain, so you'll have a good crop this year. Probably trying to save up money to buy your wife a brand new dress. Or maybe you're worried about the milk cow who's getting old, and you can't figure out how the hell you're going to be able to afford to replace her. Oh, and by the way, every now and then, you might just get attacked by some of the greatest guerrilla warfighters this world has ever known. A people whose entire life revolves around combat, and they're not too happy about you living in what they consider to be their sacred homeland. Welcome to Texas in the 1860s. You know, so much of what we're exposed to as children form us into what we become as adults. And I gotta think that if you're a kid and you have to witness your father engage in a life-or-death struggle against Comanches, that might have some sort of a developmental effect. At very least, those schoolyard arguments about whose dad can beat up who just got a little bit easier to win. My dad can beat up your dad. Oh yeah, Craig? Well, my dad fought off a GD Comanche war party. What'd yours do? Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot. He won Farmer of the Year two years in a row. Big whoop-de-doo. Try again, Craig. By 1870, the Short family was living in nearby Grayson County, Texas, still just south of the Red River. And evidently, they were forced to move away from there to the Fort Worth area just due to the horrendous stench that was wafting down from Oklahoma. They just couldn't take it anymore. I don't know if any of you listening have ever been to Oklahoma, but its residents, I don't know what the best way to say, they're not the most fragrant of people, okay? No, uh, actually the Short family moved on after Luke got into a little bit of trouble at school when he was just 13 years old. Seems he was having issues with a bully and his solution was to cave the boy's face in. Yikes. Listen, I hate a bully as much as the next guy. I even gave my son the typical dad speech when he was young. Don't fight, walk away, avoid trouble. But if things ever escalate and somebody puts their hands on you in a threatening manner, go ahead and end the fight. You know, do what you got to do. What I did not advise my son to do under any circumstances was to take things so far as to cave somebody's face in. And I'm guessing Josiah Short probably never told Luke to do that either. You standing up to a bully? Heck yeah, good job, son. Cave somebody's face in or in a fit of unsuppressed rage at the age of 13? Hmm. Maybe we, uh, maybe we need to seek some counseling after that. Maybe find a nice family therapist who can help us deal with some underlining issues. And I'm not sure if this incident marked the end of Luke's formal education or not, but a couple of years later, sometime around the age of 15 or 16, he would begin working as a cowboy. And this is an occupation that would keep him busy for about the next five or six years, making numerous trips up the trail, herding cattle to the railheads in Kansas. And although Luke's days in the schoolhouse may have been over, I'm guessing he learned quite a bit during all those years as a cowboy. 
growing from a teenager into a man on the cattle trails. Probably started off working the drags, just brutally hard work, trailing behind the cows and choking down dust. I'm sure he eventually advanced up to working the flanks, helping to keep the cattle from fanning out too much. There's a good chance his first taste of a woman was in a dirty brothel in Abilene or Wichita after one of these long drives. There's an equally good chance his first experience with a whiskey hangover happened around this time as well. Maybe after a couple of those drives up north, he was able to save some money, buy a decent saddle, maybe send some money home to his parents. Or maybe he just blew it all in town or lost it on the trail to some savvy older Callahan who fleeced him during a game of poker. Details we'll never know, but for a certainty, he gained one hell of an education in the ways of the world as a young cowboy. And this was really the heyday for cowboys. The Civil War had ended a few years prior. The railroads had just made it to Kansas. People back east were hungry for beef, and people down in Texas had an abundance of both cattle and teenage boys willing to drive the moo cows all the way to market. It ain't easy work, though. It's dangerous. Cowboys could get ramped over in a stampede, thrown from their horse, struck by lightning, snake bit, or drowned in a river crossing. Living that life meant spending a good amount of time sleeping on the cold ground and subsisting off of not much more than coffee strong enough to float a horseshoe and cold beans. The point is, there's easier ways for a man to make a living, and Luke Short realized this all too well. And by the time he was around 21 years of age or so, he moved on to pursue other endeavors. The question is, what exactly were these other endeavors? When Luke quit cowboying, it would have been sometime around 1875. And what happened for the next few years is a little on the murky side. Any quick Google search on Luke Short will bring up mentions of him being a scout for the army around this time. But for exactly how long he was a scout and, you know, what he did while he was working in that position, that's anybody's guess. After Luke's death, his time as a scout was mentioned in not one but two different obituaries. One describing him as, quote, the bravest man in government employ. And the other saying that he scouted for General Crook in the Black Hills, serving with the general all the way up until old Sitting Bull got captured. In the book The Notorious Luke Short, Sporting Man of the West, authors Jack D. Maddows and Chuck Parsons write that Luke himself claimed to have headed to the Black Hills area in 1876, but only briefly before moving on to Ogallala, Nebraska, where he may or may not have taken to being an outlaw. There's one story of him being a tough desperado at this time who was arrested for conspiring to kidnap Jay Gould. Yes, the same millionaire Jay Gould I mentioned on the Roy Bean episode. There's also rumors that Luke held up a stagecoach outside of Leadville, Colorado at this time. Lots of rumors. Keep in mind that there's not a whole lot of evidence to back all this stuff up. As tends to happen with these guys I cover on this podcast, there's always some sources that aren't really considered all that credible. And then we have the legendary Bat Masterson's account of Luke Short's life during this period. If you haven't already listened to episode 22 of Bloody Beaver Podcast that I did on Bat Masterson, you might want to give that a listen. I do mention Luke Short in it a few times, and Bat Masterson is going to pop up more than a few times in this episode. It's only fitting as the two men were friends, and a lot of what we think we know about Luke Short comes from Bat Masterson. If you've already listened to that episode, or you know, you're just familiar with Bat, then you probably remember that as an older man, he took to writing articles about his buddies back in the Wild West days. And lucky for us, Luke Short was the topic of some of these writings. There's one article in particular he wrote that I found really interesting. I will link to it in this episode's description if you want to read the whole thing. But the gist of it is, according to Bat Masterson, Luke spent some time illegally selling alcohol to Native Americans. He claimed that Luke set up a trading post of sorts somewhere around Fort Robinson in present-day Nebraska and started selling natives whiskey in exchange for buffalo robes. Evidently, he could sell a gallon of his pine top whiskey, cheap and flavored with shoots from a pine tree, for 90 cents in exchange for a buffalo robe whose value was about $10. Not a bad profit margin at all. And it's a damn sight easier than going out and hunting the buffalo yourself. Easier maybe, but not safer. I gotta imagine that more than one whiskey trader woke up dead after giving the wrong warrior a little bit too much to drink. Even the young natives that Luke traded with routinely returned to the reservation drunk as hell and started fights. This, of course, caught the attention of the Indian agent who complained about Short and his, quote, gang of cutthroats who he, the agent, had proven powerless to stop. This agent was worried that a Sioux uprising would be all but inevitable, with all that whiskey flowing and begged his superiors in Washington to do something about it. Which they did, at least you know if Bat Masterson is to be believed. In the fall of 1878, the army showed up and took Short into custody. Not for long, though. He quickly slid through the cracks of the system and fled the territory, escaping west to the gold diggings of Colorado. I will go ahead and note that Bat Masterson's writings are considered questionable by some. 
If he was telling the truth here, it was being recalled from memory some 30-odd years after the fact, and based on stories told to him by Luke himself. Short's great-nephew, Wayne Short, backs up these claims somewhat by saying that Luke did escape the army escort that had arrested him and uh, was taking him to Omaha via train to answer for his crimes. Further backing it up, I was able to find a book called Fort Robinson Outpost on the Plains, written by Roger T. Grange Jr. In this book, Mr. Grange doesn't name Luke Short, but he does write that the Indian agent at Fort Robinson reported, quote, considerable trouble with whiskey runners, as well as problems with violence. So whether or not Luke Short was involved with illegally selling whiskey to the natives around Fort Robinson or not, it most definitely was a thing that was going on. And I could see Luke being involved with this sort of thing. As you'll soon hear, Luke wasn't without shortcomings. <laughs> Get it? Because uh, his last name is Short. Shortcomings? <laughs> all right, all right, all right, all right. He was a flawed man, one who liked money. One who got that money by possibly doing things that were morally questionable. There's some evidence that suggests he was arrested around this same time for cheating a man out of a considerable sum of money at Three Card Money. And then there's that rumor I already mentioned that states he may have robbed a stagecoach. But what about all the talk about him being a scout for the Army? We do have concrete proof that he worked as a civilian scout for the Army, but only for a short amount of time. And by a short amount of time, I mean just a few days. He worked as a dispatch courier for Major Thomas Tipton Thornburg out of Ogallala. So just to sum it all up, Luke possibly spent time in Deadwood, definitely spent a little bit of time scouting for the Army, at least, and possibly got arrested for illegally selling whiskey to the Indians. He also may have done some buffalo hunting, as well as possibly being involved in some fighting scraps with hostile natives. By 1879, Short had definitely made his way to Leadville, Colorado, and this is where he's first really seen as kind of making a living as a gambler. But like I said, this is still sort of a cloudy time of his life. Not a lot of hard facts and a whole lot of hearsay. We know Luke spent time in Colorado. He was possibly involved in not one but two killings there in the Denver area as a result of card games gone wrong. According to Mr. Bat Masterson, Short was involved in a third shooting in Leadville, where he wounded a man during yet another gambling dispute. For whatever reason, you know, maybe the bodies were piling up, or maybe the cards turned bad. Maybe he just wanted warmer weather. I don't know. But Luke decided to light out for a little place called Tombstone in late 1880. Tombstone, as I'm sure you already know, was a mining town in present-day Delaware that's famous for its rich Wild West history. And it was in Tombstone that Luke first struck up a friendship with the likes of Bat Masterson and Wyatt Earp. It's also where he got into a little gunfight with a man named Charlie Storms. And unlike the previous gunfights in Colorado, we actually do have recorded witness statements to give us a pretty good idea of what went down between him and Charlie. The fight took place outside the Oriental Saloon in February of 1881. But it all started inside at a faro table where Wyatt Earp was working as a dealer and short as a lookout. And a lookout man back in those days was the guy who basically just supervised the game and made sure there was no cheating going on. Kind of like a pit boss does nowadays. Oh, and by the way, those of you screaming at your speakers or cracking your knuckles and getting ready to send me a very strongly worded email, yes, I know Tombstone is in Arizona. I just said Delaware to liven things up a little. Make sure you're not sleeping on me. Back to Luke Short. For whatever reason, this guy Charlie Storms and Luke got into it. And it looks like Charlie was the instigator and sort of viewed Luke as an easy target. Short lived up to his surname, by the way. He wasn't a big man, only about 5 foot 6 inches tall and weighing in at about 140 pounds. He was, as Bat Masterson once described, an insignificant looking fellow. Insignificant looking or not, Luke just wasn't going to sit around and let this Charlie Storms guy drunkenly insult him. Remember the old cliche about big things coming in small packages? That's reason number 1,002,043 why you should never mistake the outer man for the inner. It's also important to mention that Charlie Storms wasn't just some random nobody. Researching topics for this podcast, I'm constantly discovering guys like Charlie Storms who should, in my opinion, be just as well known as, say, Clay Allison or Doc Holliday. And yet, for whatever reason, guys like Charlie and even Luke Short, to a certain extent, get sort of forgotten. Turns out Charlie Storms was, at one point, one of the best-known gamblers in the West. He was old school, 31 years Luke Sr., and a veteran of the California Gold Rush era who drifted from violent town to violent town. Virginia City, Dodd City, Leadville, Deadwood, Tombstone. So this wasn't just some young buck that decided to test Luke's nerves. This was an experienced man, a killer, who had decades of experience rubbing shoulders with other killers. But we always end up meeting someone meaner, don't we? In Tombstone, 
Charlie Storms met that somebody in the form of a 27-year-old Luke Short. As the pair began arguing and looked like blood was about to get spilt, Bat Masterson got between the two and was initially able to stop things from getting out of hand. He convinced Luke not to shoot, and at the same time, he got Charlie to leave the saloon. Crisis averted. See, Bat was friends with both Luke and Charlie. He even went so far as telling Luke that Storms was really a decent sort of man. Things probably would have been left at that had Charlie not shown back up to escalate things further. Now, I gotta imagine alcohol was involved here. By the time the fight went down, Short was no longer inside the saloon, but standing outside with Masterson. All of a sudden, here comes Charlie running up, and before Bat could stop him, he grabbed Luke's arm, pulling him off the sidewalk. Both Charlie and Short went for the guns at this time, but Luke was faster. Storms was able to clear leather, but before he could get a shot off, Luke put two, possibly three rounds into him, point blank. Like, for real, point blank. Short's pistol was so close that when it erupted, it set Charlie's shirt on fire. Charlie Storms didn't care, though. By the time his shirt was smoldering, both his gambling career and life were over. Now remember, this is mostly Bat's version of the story. But it's not too far off from another version that was posted a few days later in a Leadville paper. The only difference was the paper reported that Charlie grabbed Luke by the ear as opposed to his arm. Short was arrested for this shooting, but it was ruled self-defense. This wasn't the only time that Luke took a life while in Tombstone. He ended up getting into it with another gambler, a guy named Frank Stone. This time the motive is a little less clear, but it was either over a woman or a game of cards. And Luke didn't come out unscathed. He did receive some sort of a wound, I'm assuming from a bullet. Frank Stone wasn't so lucky. He ended up getting buried. A couple months later, both Luke and Masterson moved on from Tombstone, which is likely why neither one of them ended up joining in on the action that Wyatt Earp and his brothers would soon find themselves immersed in, there against the Cowboys. Short returned to Kansas and settled down in Dodge City, eventually buying Chalk Beeson's interest in the Long Branch Saloon in 1883, which made him a partner with a William H. Harris. In March of that same year, Harris ran for mayor of Dodge City, against a man named Lawrence E. Deeger, who was part of what was known as the Law and Order Ticket. And Deeger beat the brakes off of Harris, winning the election 214-43. to 43. Okay, no big deal. So what? Harris isn't the mayor. At least he and Luke still had the Long Branch Saloon. If only it were that simple. Turns out Mayor Deeger had the backing of the former Dodge City mayor, guy named Webster, who just so happened to be the owner of Alamo Saloon, whose main competitor was, you guessed it, the Long Branch. My, my, my. It wasn't too long after the election that the city council, all friends of Deeger and Webster, passed two city ordinances. Once again, if this sounds familiar, it's probably because I talked about it on my Bat Masterson episode. It's very important to the Luke Short story as well, so I'm going to go over it again. Ordinance 70 was an edict for the suppression of vice and immorality within city limits. The next ordinance, Ordinance 71, was passed with the dual purpose of both defining and punishing vagrancy. Now, vagrancy, according to the definition that I looked up, is defined as living in a state of homelessness. You know, when I think of a vagrant, I think of like a bum on the street. Historically, vagrancy laws have been enforced to make it a crime for a person to just wander from place to place without a visible means of income or support. This, at times, has been a way for local politicians to criminalize people for being down on their luck. You know, maybe people who've hit rock bottom and find themselves out on the streets. It's also a way to deal with guys like Luke Short, who was somewhat of a vagrant by definition. He did wander from place to place, you know, Texas to Kansas to Nebraska to Colorado, then Arizona, and now he's back in Kansas. And he wasn't no honest farmer, or milkman, or shopkeep. He gambled and he sold liquor and probably kept company with women of ill repute. And if you really want to get down to it, he was a dangerous man. It wasn't all that cut and dry, though. Mayor Deeger wasn't targeting all of the people in Dodge City that were like Luke Short. You know, he wasn't going after any other saloons or gambling houses. Mm-mm. The good mayor was using his position and these ordinances to specifically target the Long Branch Saloon and put it and it alone out of business. And on April 28, 1883, the mayor made moves to do just that, sending in the law to arrest three prostitutes working at the Long Branch. This led to Luke Short confronting and exchanging gunfire with one of the arresting officers. Nobody was hurt, but Short was arrested and promptly released on a $2,000 bond. Gotta love these old West laws. You steal a horse and will literally tie a rope around your neck and murder you with it. Shoot at a cop? Eh, here's a fine and a slap on the wrist. It's okay. Two days after Luke was released on bond, he was once again arrested, along with five other men, for gambling. They were then escorted to the train station and given their choice of direction out of town. 
east or west. Short chose east and headed straight for Kansas City, where he found his old friend Charlie Bassett. Now, Charlie Bassett's an OG of the Kansas frontier. He's also another one of these guys that doesn't get nearly enough recognition. He was almost like a mentor to guys like Bat Masterson, Wyatt Earp. Hell, they both worked for him at one point. Bassett was a little bit older, you know, having did a short stint in the Army at the tail end of the Civil War before coming out west and becoming a lawman. He was, once upon a time, a two-term sheriff of Ford County, where Dodge City is located. He also served as the assistant marshal of Dodge City and, by 1878, was the marshal of Dodge City. And on top of all of that, he was one of the original founders of the Long Branch Saloon, the same saloon that the powers-to-be were now trying to shut down. And Charlie Bassett wasn't the only friend that came to Luke's aid at this time. The old crew came slinking in from every direction and formed a little something that became ironically known as the Dodge City Peace Commission. You've all seen the picture. If you haven't, just Google Dodge City Peace Commission. It's one of the coolest Old West pictures out there, and it features eight very serious-looking men. Standing in the back from left to right, you've got William Harris, co-owner of the Long Branch Saloon. By the way, Harris and Luke Short go all the way back to Tombstone. He was in that inner circle with Short and Wyatt Earp in those Oriental Saloon days. Next to Harris is the man of the hour, Luke Short, the smallest built man in the group and the only one pictured wearing a white hat. Next to Luke is Bat Masterson, who needs no introduction. And next to Bat is William F. Patillon. Now, William Patillon, I couldn't find much information on, up to and including how to pronounce his damn name. Patillon? Petilon? I don't know. What little I can find on the man comes from Bat Masterson, who said Patillon was originally from Chicago and moved out west for health reasons. At the time of this photo, Patillon was county clerk for Lincoln County, Kansas, as well as, get ready for this, a pie-eating champion. I'm not making that up. I kind of wonder how he plays into things. Hey, guys, guys, listen up. Those bastards over in Dodge kicked our good friend Luke out of town, and if we want to push back, we're going to have to assemble a crack team of professionals. Now, we've already got Harris over here, and Bassett is the brains of the outfit, and we've got our muscle with Bat and Wyatt, but I feel like we're missing something. Hold on, I've got it. We need to find us the most pie-eatingest son of a bitch we can find. And I think I know just the guy. At least that's how it, you know, happened in my mind. Pettilon would later go on to become the editor of the Dodge City Democrat newspaper. Sitting down in the front row of the photograph, from left to right, you've got Charlie Bassett. Next to him is Wyatt Earp. Now remember, this is 1883. Wyatt is fresh off the trail from his famous vendetta ride. He had done kilt Curly Bill Brocious, Frank Stilwell, and Johnny Barnes by this point, as well as eluding Cochise County Sheriff Johnny Behan and his wife Maddie, who he dumped in exchange for Josephine. At this point, Wyatt Earp simply did not give a shit. Next to him in the picture is a guy named Frank McLean. He, like Petalone, was not a gunfighter. Nor was he a pie-eating champion. Let's just get that straight right off the bat. Something that I'm sure Petalon reminded him of every second of every day. Nothing Frank ever did was good enough for Petalon. Every single milestone of Frank's life, his marriage, his first child being born, the first time he started a business, was always followed by Petalon asking, Yeah, well, how many pies you eat today? That son of a bitch. Uh, no. Frank McLean was a sport man, a gambler. And he was one of the men that got ran out of town with Luke Short. Next to Frank and rounding out the photo is Neil Brown. Neil, just like Bat and Wyatt and Charlie Bassett, was a former law dog. And he used to hunt buffalo with another famous Wild West lawman, Bill Tillman, who was possibly also a member of the Dodge City Peace Commission. He wasn't present for the photo, but these guys pictured weren't the only ones involved in this little fracas. There were other noted gunmen involved. Guys like Shotgun John Collins and Rowdy Joe Lowe and even Doc Holliday. Full disclosure, though. I could not find out for sure if Doc Holliday was actually there in Dodge City or if that was just some false reporting on the part of the local papers. I'm by no means an expert on anything Doc Holliday related, but I was under the impression that once he left Arizona for Colorado, that he basically stayed in Colorado for the rest of his life. According to an article I found on True West Magazine, written by Marshall Trimble, and titled The Dodge City War, Doc was apparently back in Colorado by the time this famous picture we're talking about was taken. If he was involved, though, you know, as a member of the Peace Commission, no wonder Mayor Deager got real nervous real fast. Doc was a heavy hitter. The hell, so were Wyatt Earp and Neil Brown. This wasn't no accident. These men gathered to rally around Luke Short were there as a means of intimidation. 
Their reputations were such that just them being in the general area scared the hell out of Luke's opposition. And while there isn't a whole lot of concrete evidence when it comes to what occupied Luke Short in his early years, there's a ton of stuff written about this Dodge City War. Newspaper articles and letters that paint a pretty accurate picture of what went down. The English website Spartacus Educational was one of many great resources I found while researching this episode. And they got a lot of these old articles and letters published on their site. I will link to them in this episode's description so you can check it out for yourself. But I'll also read a few, just to give you an idea of the general feeling in the air at the time. The Dodge City Times published an article on May 3rd, just a couple of days after Luke was forced to leave town, that read in part, quote, As a precaution, about 150 citizens were on watch Monday night, and a large police force is still held on duty day and night. Mayor Deeger, the police force, and the citizens of Dodge City are determined that the lawless element shall not thrive in this city. No halfway measures will be used in the suppression of either lawlessness or riots. Mayor Deeger is a resolute, fearless, and obstinate officer. All good and law-abiding citizens are standing by him in this trying emergency. Okay. Doesn't sound too good for old Luke Short. Sounds like the people of Dodge City are united against him and willing to ensure he doesn't come back and try to start any trouble. Also says a lot about Luke and his friends' reputations if the citizens of Dodge feel like they need 150 armed men as well as the police force out there patrolling the streets day and night. However, a guy named Otto Muller sent a letter to Luke Short just a couple of days later where he writes in part that the public opinion was, quote, gradually but steadily changing in your favor. All your friends are at work with a determination which is bound to win in the end. Of course, every movement must be made with the greatest care and caution, and as many are too timid to express themselves, it will naturally require time. But the organization that style themselves the vigilantes will be convinced that they must give way to public opinion. Okay, so, you know, maybe the public was on Luke's side, but just too scared of Mayor Deeger's goons to speak up. A newspaper out of Kansas City, the Evening Star, was definitely on Luke's side, judging by what they published on May 9th. I'll go ahead and read the full article, so just bear with me real quick. I think it's important, because it shows a completely different side to the story than the Dodge City paper did. It reads, quote, Just before the last city election, the mayor was a man named Webster, the proprietor of a dive, half saloon, and the other half gambling house and variety hall. He was a representative of the tougher element of the sporting fraternity. The head of the other faction was W.H. Harris of Harris and Short, proprietors of the Long Branch Saloon. Harris represented the quieter and more reputable element, and there was a bitter feeling between the two. At the last election, Harris was beaten in the race for mayor by Deeger, Webster's candidate. And since then, it has been conceded that it was only a matter of time when all of Harris's sympathizers would be driven out of town. Thus, Dodge has been hovering on the brink of trouble for a long time. About 10 days ago, it came. Mr. Short, who was Harris's partner and a police officer, had a shooting fray. Neither were hurt, but the evidence showed that Short was bred on first. He was nevertheless placed under bonds and the next day thrown into jail. A short time later, five gamblers were arrested and also jailed. That night, a vigilante committee was formed with Tom Nixon, the proprietor of one of the hardest dance halls that ever existed in the West, at the head. This crowd repaired to the jail and notified the prisoners that they must leave town the next morning and that they would be given their choice of trains going east or west. Meantime, the vigilantes took possession of the town. The correspondent of the Chicago Times and other leading papers were notified that they must not be permitted to send any telegrams in reference to the situation, and a body of armed men watched the arrival of each train to see that there was no interference. A lawyer sent for by one of the prisoners was met by a vigilante who leveled a shotgun at his head and told him not to stop. He passed on. Next morning, the five gamblers were put on a westbound train and short left for Kansas City, where he is at present. The trouble has by no means abated. The place is practically in the hands of the vigilantes and the situation is more serious from the fact that the mayor is acting with them and it was he who notified the prisoners that they must go. The trains are still being watched and armed men guard the town, while a list of others who will be ordered out has been prepared. Every source of reliable information indicates that Dodge is now in the hands of desperados and the lives and property of its citizens are by no means safe. For this reason, martial law is being asked. That there will be trouble of a very serious character there is anticipated. All right, so there you have it from the folks at the Evening Star. Looks like they didn't hold back any punches there regarding Mayor Deeger, former Mayor Webster, or the vigilantes. They mentioned Tom Nix, who, by the way, was a deadly gunman in his own right. 
a genuine tough guy. No wonder they chose him to lead the vigilantes. He also was a saloon owner and competitor with the Long Branch, so, you know, there's his motive. Now, lest you think this is just all just a matter of the Kansas City newspaper versus the Dodge City newspaper, let's look at what the damn governor of the entire state of Kansas had to say when he wrote to the Ford County Sheriff, George Hinkle. He said in part, quote, Your dispatch to me presents an extraordinary state of affairs, one that is outrageous upon its face. You tell me that the mayor has compelled several parties to leave town for refusing to comply with the ordinances. Such a statement as that, if true, simply shows that the mayor is unfit for his place, that he does not do his duty, and instead of occupying the position of peacemaker, the man whose duty it is to see that the ordinances are enforced by legal process in the courts, starts out to head a mob to drive people away from their homes and businesses. Ooh, Mayor Deer is in trouble. We say we want to be challenged. We say we want to hear all sides, but that's not how we act when we seek out podcasts. I'm Mike Pesca, host of The Gist, and I'm crazy enough to think that we are up to the challenge. I challenge myself. I challenge my guests. I invite you in. We'll talk about such issues as masks. I mean, I know they work, but on a population level, the evidence is less than clear. Mass shootings, horrible, but they account for less than 1% of all shootings. Do we do ourselves and our society a disservice when we focus on them? These questions and more explored and challenged every day on The Gist, wherever you get your podcasts. The governor then went on to write about how he's aware of the armed mob and, you know, how the mayor was only using the ordinances to target businesses that he didn't like. Finishing off the letter by telling the sheriff that, quote, no citizen shall be driven away from his home and that the mayor of Dodge City shall not pick out men and say that the ordinances shall be enforced against them and not enforced against others. And I think the governor is right here. Deager overstepped big time. Wild West or not, this was a major abuse of power. It always warms my heart just a little when I read or hear about politicians standing up against mob rule and the abuse of power. And it's so very rare that that ever happens, so when it does, it's kind of refreshing. On May 12th, the Topeka Daily Capital weighed in on the situation where they dropped a bombshell, alleging that Mayor Deeger wasn't even a legal resident of Dodge City until shortly before the election. And what's even worse, trains were brought in full of men who also didn't live in Dodge, to cast votes for Deeger in the election. So the assertion here is that the election was rigged. Deeger was handpicked by the former Mayor Webster, who then ensured that Deeger got the votes he needed. To quote the article, Deeger is a mere creature of Webster. So thanks to these letters and news articles, we're starting to get a picture of what was really going on. Everybody was on edge. And you throw guys like Tom Nixon into the mix, you got yourself a volcano ready to explode. I think the word is volatile. It's a volatile situation. And just to show you how unpredictable the situation had gotten, on May 13th, the Daily Kansas Journal reported, quote, the troubles at Dodge City are assuming serious proportions, and the governor must interfere very soon or a terrible tragedy will undoubtedly result. The article goes on to claim that while the governor has been attempting to keep the peace, he wasn't making any headway. And even the sheriff admitted that he can't protect anybody should the shit pop off. The same paper printed another article that very same day saying the following about Luke Short. Luke Short, over whom all this Dodge City excitement and sensation has been created, doesn't look like a man that would be dangerous to let live in any community. In fact, he is a regular dandy, quite handsome and a perfect ladies' man. He dresses fashionably, is particular as to his appearance, and always takes pains to look as neat as possible. At Dodge City, he associates with the very best elements and leads in almost every social event that has gotten up. A Dr. Gallon thinks that the ladies will yet be heard from in Mr. Short's behalf. They have been very anxious to get up a petition among themselves to send the governor, and it will probably come yet. Ugh. Yeah, as you can see, bias in media is not a new invention. Obviously, the Daily Kansas City Journal is on Luke's side. And that first article I read that spoke badly about Short, that was the Dodge City paper. And they, you know, they could have possibly have done so under the threat of the mayor and his vigilantes. I don't know. I try not to look at the news too much nowadays. I stay informed, you know, I keep my ears to the streets. I'll be hearing, but I don't immerse myself in it like I used to. It's bad for your mental health. But when I do read the news, and I say read because I absolutely do not watch any of the network news channels, I always try to read between the lines. Nobody, and I mean nobody, is truly unbiased. Even if it's just on the subconscious level, everybody has a bias. Anyway, I don't know what I'm rambling about. I guess the whole point I'm trying to make is I'm trying to read between the lines here with all these articles and letters that I'm reading and trying to figure out what's really going on. 
And I'm not trying to bore y'all with all these articles. Hopefully you find it as interesting as I do. I'll read one last thing, written by the man of the hour himself, Luke Short. It's rare we ever get to hear from one of these guys in their own words. You know, let's assume that Short actually wrote this letter himself and hear what he has to say. By the way, it's a letter he wrote to the Daily Kansas. It reads, They speak of Mr. Harris being a man without character, and that he is living in an open state of adultery with a prostitute, which is an infamous lie. And I will venture to say that there is not a man in Kansas who knows Mr. Harris, but will say that he is an honest and honorable man and a good citizen, and can buy and sell every man whose name appears on that official list. As to living with a prostitute, I consider that a rather broad assertion to make, and consider such things his own private affairs and nobody's business. I can say, however, that if the accusation is true, it is nothing more than what Sutton, Webster, Deeger, Chipman, Hartman, and others of that outfit have done in the past and are doing at the present. Webster abandoned his family for a prostitute. Nixon did the same, and there are only those who cannot get a prostitute to live with who have not got them. And it is conceded fact by all who have any knowledge of Dodge that all of the thieves, thugs, and prostitutes who have been in town in the past two years have been directly and indirectly connected with the city government. These assertions I am prepared to prove in any court of justice in the world. They go further on and state that I am a desperate character and that it's not been long since I murdered an old gray-haired man in Arizona and that I have been run out of nearly every country I have lived in, which is as infamous as it is false, as there is not a civilized country under the face of the sun that I cannot go to with perfect safety, except in Dodge City. And there is no law to prevent me from living there, nothing but a band of cutthroats and midnight assassins who have banded together for the purpose of keeping all those out of the place who are liable to oppose them at the polls, or offer them opposition in their businesses. As to my murdering an old gray-haired man in Arizona, I was tried in a court of justice for any offense I committed there, and the records will show that it was a fair and impartial trial and that I was honorably acquitted. The delegation who came here to see the governor and who claimed to represent the moral element of the town was principally composed of tramps who do not own a single foot of ground in the country and never have. All right, very interesting. And the letter was signed, Miss You, Hugs and Kisses, XOXO, followed by three of those uh, purple eggplant emojis so whatever that means now nah, i'm kidding but still interesting nonetheless the gray-haired man obviously is uh charlie storms who luke killed while in tombstone the two takeaways i got from this letter is short was sensitive to the idea that maybe some people felt like he took advantage of storms advanced age during that gunfight and harris was definitely living with a whore and also that him living with a whore is nobody's damn business on June 5th, a newspaper out of Topeka reported that Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday were already in Dodge City and hiding, ready to spring to action, and that the plan was for Short and his friends to soon drive out all of their opposition by the barrel of their revolvers. Fortunately for all involved, things never resorted to gunplay. Matter of fact, while all this was playing itself out in the papers, Luke Short himself went to the Kansas capital Topeka and presented a petition before the governor. CYA. That's rule number one of Bloody Beaver Podcast. CYA. Cover your ass. In return, the governor advised Luke to go ahead and handle his business in Dodge, and then just clear out. The day after the, quote, Peace Commission showed up in Dodge City, Mayor Deeger issued a proclamation that resulted in every single gambling establishment being shut down. And this backfired on the mayor, big time. I don't know if this was Deeger's, like, last-ditch power move or his idea of a checkmate or what, but it failed miserably. And I think the main reason it failed was due to it being peak cattle season. A whole bunch of thirsty, trail-weary cowboys were arriving in Kansas, and they all wanted to head to town to drink and gamble away some of their hard-earned money. Once the herds found out that Dodge City was closed down to everything fun, they headed elsewhere. I was kind of thinking about it in terms of a city getting picked to host the Super Bowl. According to an economic impact report that I found released by the Minnesota Super Bowl Host Committee, more than $450 million was spent in the state of Minnesota over a 10-day period in 2018. Why? Because of the Super Bowl, that's why. And the huge circus that surrounds it. All the fans, celebrities, journalists, media types, all flocking in and spending money. Not to mention all the vendors and entrepreneurs who flood the area looking to take said money. Now imagine that happening every single year. And that being your city's main source of revenue. That's kind of what the cattle herds were to Dodge City. The entire existence of the town was based off the money that all the cowboys and railroad men brought in each year. Are there bad apples to come with this? Yes, of course. Gamblers, whores, pimps, criminals. 
The same exact bad elements that you'll even get nowadays if your city hosts a Super Bowl. But it does have a positive financial impact on the area. Once the cattle outfits started diverting their herds to more vice-friendly pastures, the money started drying up. And that's when the local businesses, even the Santa Fe Railroad, who did a lot of business in town, said enough's enough. We're bleeding money over here. Needless to say, it wasn't too long before both factions had a sit-down and called a truce. And just like that, the anticlimactic Dodge City War was over. Nobody got shot in the process, and Luke Short stuck it to the man. Sometimes it's the little victories that count, you know? And although he was victorious, he knew when he wasn't welcome. He'd already been arrested more than once in Dodge. The mayor absolutely hated him. The city council didn't care for him much either. And let's not forget the fact that he had already traded bullets with a daggum police officer. It was time to move on. Thus, in November of 83, Luke sold out his share of the Long Branch Saloon and moved down to Texas, where there was still plenty of gambling to be had. Luke puttered around San Antonio for a short time, but he didn't find it as much to his liking as he did Fort Worth. I gotta say, I disagree with Luke here. I personally wouldn't mind living near San Antonio. Fort Worth, on the other hand? Eh, I don't know. Maybe it wasn't so bad in the 19th century when there weren't any Dallas Cowboys fans hanging around that you had to deal with. Short hit the ground running in Fort Worth, quickly going into business with two guys named Jake Johnson and Alex Reddick, and the trio opened up a saloon called the White Elephant. This guy Jake Johnson was rich, by the way. I'm talking Oprah rich. But that didn't stop him, along with Luke Short, from getting routinely fined for running games of chance there at the White Elephant. And these fines were just the cost of doing business. Extortion is defined as the practice of obtaining something, especially money, through force or threats. Anytime there's any sort of illegal or even legal but kind of shady type of business being conducted, even nowadays, you can be assured that somebody is getting a payoff. There is, however, a limit to how much a man is willing to pay, which we'll get to in a moment. But first, let's discuss an extraordinary demonstration that Luke was said to have performed there in Fort Worth around this time. Legend goes that a waiter handed Short a glass of milk with a fly on the surface, and Luke threw the glass in the air, drew his pistol, and shot the fly. Do I believe that this happened? Negative. How would you even know he actually hit the fly? It's a fucking fly. A 40 caliber bullet would disintegrate it. It's not like the fly is going to just fall on the ground and clutch his chest. Bzzz, I've been hit. Bzzz. No. But is it possible to hit such a small target? I think so. I mean, all you got to do is YouTube the phrase shoot aspirin out of the air to see some ridiculously amazing feats of accuracy. There's even one dude who shot an aspirin out of the air with a damn arrow. Nowadays, we can slow down the tape and actually see the point of impact and see the aspirin just explode into a fine powder, but you couldn't do that back in Luke Short's day. Maybe he was capable of such shooting, but there's no way in hell you could prove it. Did you know that Bat Masterson became quite the sporting man as he grew older? Mm-hmm, it's true. And one of his main interests was boxing. Well, old Billy Bats, as I like to call him, is widely credited as being the one that got his friend Luke Short involved in the sport as well even setting Luke up as a referee for a few matches. And while Short did enjoy the sweet science of fisticuffs, it was horse racing that was his real passion. And not just betting on the horses either, Luke bought his own swift pony and suited up in a jockey's outfit at least once in 1886. He came in last place, but damn it, that doesn't matter. You know, it's not the critic that counts or some such shit. At least he tried, okay? And at least on one occasion, Luke arranged a battle between two men on horseback who were armed with broadswords. Yeah, you heard me, broad swords. No idea who won this match, but I'm positive whatever the outcome, Luke managed to line his pockets with the proceeds. So yeah, things are starting to look up for Luke. But you know how that goes. Life oftentimes has a way of, well, getting in the way. In Luke's case, there were those ever-increasing fines being levied against him, and they were adding up. Then there was some family trouble brewing down south. Turns out Luke's younger brother Henry shot and killed a man in early 1870 down in San Angelo. And it wasn't no simple case of self-defense, uh-uh. The dead man in question was shot in the back. I suppose that the dearly departed could have accidentally turned at the last second, but either way, Henry Short was going to need a good lawyer. He wisely headed north to Fort Worth before the law could catch him and sought help from his big brother. And Luke was there for it. He accompanied his brother back to San Angelo where he oversaw Henry safely turning himself into the sheriff. And then he put up money for his bond and got him a lawyer. Unfortunately, lawyers are expensive. And Luke needed more than one. He himself was facing legal problems in Fort Worth. In an attempt to keep the wolves at bay, Short was looking to sell his portion of the White Elephant Saloon. You know, trying to keep things liquid, raise some capital. 
The last thing he needed happening during all of this was yet another person trying to shake him down. Enter in long-haired Jim Courtright, a man with a reputation that equaled, if not exceeded, that of Luke Short. Jim was a former city marshal of Fort Worth, where he made a name as the type of guy who'd shoot first and ask questions later. He also marshaled down in New Mexico as well as working as a hired gun for a mining company. Matter of fact, he was wanted for the murder of two men in New Mexico. Back in Fort Worth, Big Jim, as he was sometimes called, formed his own detective agency, but mostly busied himself by extorting businesses in the area of Fort Worth known as Hell's Half Acre, a.k.a. the Red Light District. Or as my mamma used to say, the type of place where nothing good happens after 9 o'clock at night. Matter of fact, just to be on the safe side, you might ought to just go ahead and stay inside after the Wheel of Fortune goes off. Hell's Half Acre was formed when ranchers started herding cattle up to Kansas. It became a popular stopping off point, and if you approached Fort Worth from the south, this area is the first part of town that you saw. It was full of the type of establishments that you'd imagine. Dance halls, whorehouses, gambling dens, bingo parlors, candy shops, laser tag, indoor rock climbing, and seedy internet cafes. Alright, I made the last few up, but you get the picture. Hell's Half Acre is where you'd go for a good time. You know, where you go to watch a cockfight, or bet on some horses, or maybe find a temporary girlfriend. This is the area that long-haired Jim Courtright ran roughshod over in the late 70s when he was marshal. However, by 1887, Luke Short's White Elephant Saloon was not technically in Hell's Half Acre. The White Elephant was more of an uptown joint. But that didn't stop Big Jim from trying to throw his weight around there as well. Like I said, Luke was strapped for money, so he was trying to sell out his action in the White Elephant. But when Jim Courtright started sniffing around, that complicated matters. Nobody wants to invest in the saloon if they got to then turn around and have long-haired Jim saying something along the lines of, that's a nice saloon you got there. Be a pity if something were to happen to it. And although Big Jim was not a law enforcement officer at this time with any sort of official authority, he was well-known and still riding high on that reputation as a hardened killer. Luke Short wasn't one to be intimidated by the likes of long-haired Jim Courtright, though. And he let him know just that. You know, it was bad enough that he had to routinely pay fines to the real law there in Fort Worth as well as his own damn lawyers. Now this ass clown shows up and tries to extort him for even more? By God, Luke wasn't having it. Told Jim that he could protect himself just fine without any outside muscle. Courtright obviously didn't appreciate this very much. He had a reputation to uphold. If Short refused to kowtow or bend the knee, then maybe all the others will start growing a backbone and try doing the same thing. This was unacceptable, and if Jim wanted to save face, he had no choice but to make an example out of Luke. Things finally came to a head on February 8th of 1887. Courtright confronted Short outside the White Elephant where Luke was standing with his thumbs hooked in his vest. At some point, Luke dropped his hands, which caused Big Jim to become alarmed to yell out to Short that he didn't need to be going for his guns. But at the same time he was hollering those words, he himself began pulling his gun. Luke would later claim that he was never going for his gun, just adjusting his vest. Which is exactly what somebody going for their gun would say, okay? Some speculate that Courtright yelled out the business about Luke going for his gun with witnesses in mind. I guess the idea being that once he killed Luke, then the others could vouch that he thought Short was going for his gun. Self-defense. Either way, things had reached a tipping point. Once Jim placed his hand on the butt of that revolver, there weren't no going back. And if Luke really had only been adjusting his vest, he no longer was. You know, seeing that deadly turn of events, he too drew his revolver. And once again, just like in Colorado and just like in Tombstone, speed was on the side of Luke Short. And maybe Lady Luck as well. Some say that Courtright's pistol got hung up on his watch chain. Others say that Luke's first shot blew Big Jim's thumb off, causing him to fumble and try to shoot with his other hand. No matter the details, the results were all the same. Luke pumped five rounds of his deadly 45 into long-haired Jim Courtright, who would never be able to shake down anyone else ever again. Luke got arrested for this shooting, but he was released on bond and ultimately never even faced a trial. Everybody knew what was up. Jim Courtright played a stupid game and came out on the losing end. Not too long after this incident, Luke Short began to get squared away as far as his finances went. He was no longer part owner of the White Elephant, but from what I can tell, he was able to pay off he and his brother's lawyers. He was 33 years old, and it was getting time for him to settle down and take a wife. And let me just go ahead and say, when it came to picking a wife, Luke Short chose well. Last episode I did on Judge Roy Bean, I kind of made some not-so-nice remarks about Lily Langtree's physical attractiveness. You know, whatever, that's just my taste. Luke Short's new bride, a Miss Hattie Buck, well, that's a whole nother story. Go ahead and do a Google image search for Hattie Buck Short. I'll wait. Mm-hmm. See what I'm talking about? Hashtag historical hottie. 
Hattie's full name was Harriet Beecher Buck. She was nine years Luke's junior, and although she was written up in the newspapers as being a rich banker's daughter, her father was actually a poor farmer, and also dead by the time she and Luke got hitched. The newlyweds did some traveling for their honeymoon, all the way up north to New York City's Coney Island, where they took in the Belmont Stakes, a thoroughbred horse racing event that's still held to this day. During this time, Luke was basically following the racing circuit. I'm not for sure if he had a stake in any certain horses, or if he was just betting on them, or what. I think it was a mix of both. You know, evidently it paid. He wasn't exactly struggling financially anymore. Back in Fort Worth, Luke's old white elephant partner, Jake Johnson, opened up a new joint called Palais Royal. And Short may have been a silent partner in this venture. And no, this is not the same Palais Royal where old ladies go to buy stylish yet sensible clothing on clearance. This Palais Royal was billed as a super resort, but I'm thinking that's a nice way of saying a place where people who didn't smell very bad could go to drink and gamble. One can only assume that no Oklahomans were allowed anywhere on the premises. I'm just messing with you, Oklahoma. Don't get your panties all in a bunch. If I really didn't like people from Oklahoma, then I wouldn't even mention the damn state. Trust me, y'all are nowhere near as bad as people from Michigan. I've actually heard they're born with tails up there in Michigan. It gives me the creeps just thinking about them. Anyway, I mentioned earlier how Bat Masterson helped stoke Luke's interest in boxing. Well, when Luke wasn't following the horse races, and when the summers in Fort Worth were just getting a little too dang hot, he and Hattie took to traveling to Chicago, where Short began making waves as a boxing promoter. By 1890, Luke and Hattie were still on the move. Fort Worth, New Orleans, Chicago, Memphis, Tennessee, Saratoga Springs, New York. Speaking of Memphis, he and some partners were pretty successful running a Pharaoh game down there. But the designated banker of the group went and got himself robbed of all their winnings. The so-called banker, a gambler named Charles Wright, thought Luke and the others should bear some of the financial burden. And Short disagreed. Wright was supposed to lock the money up in a safe. For whatever reason, after a significant win, he instead stupidly decided to keep the money in his hotel room, which is where it was stolen from. Whoopsie. I guess Luke Short doesn't believe in accidents, not when that much money is at stake. According to an article of the Memphis Ledger, dated April 12, 1891, Luke Short locked Charles Wright in the same hotel room that the money was stolen out of, barred the door, and burned the entire hotel down around Wright. Afterwards, witnesses claimed that they saw Short calmly light a cigar, take a puff, and exclaim, quote, Eat a bag of dicks, Charlie. No, that's uh, not what happened at all. Luke Short actually handed the matter over to authorities, like a responsible adult. And the authorities agreed with Luke. They thought, you know, that Wright should bear the full financial burden. This caused Wright to have, quote, hard words with Luke Short. Hard words. Yeah, but what, what else is he going to do, you know? Throw down on a gunfighter? Yeah. Matter of fact, it turns out he would throw down. Late December of 1890 found both Short and Wright back in Fort Worth. And Wright still hadn't let that shit go. The two men were beefing, as they say on the streets. 50 Cent and Ja Rule ain't got shit on Luke Short and Charles Wright. Now, what exactly led to the events I'm about to describe, nobody knows. Obviously, the two men didn't like each other. But for whatever reason, something occurred that caused Luke to, I think stupidly, go on the offense. Wright was overseeing some gambling at his own joint there on Main Street, a place called the Bank Saloon, when Luke showed up and shut things down, going so far as to evict all of Wright's customers at gunpoint. Once they all cleared out, that's when a highly pissed off Charles Wright threw down, grabbing his shotgun and dropping the hammer on short. This resulted in Luke gaining several new holes in his body mostly in his left hand and left hip. Luke then responded by returning fire and shooting Charles in his right wrist, shattering it. There was no shooting a fly off a glass of milk type shooting going on here. Just two dudes, possibly drunker than hell, taking shots at each other. Nan one was killed, but once the smoke cleared, they parted ways to go lick their wounds. And Luke's wounds weren't just superficial. His left thumb had to be amputated at the joint, and one newspaper said this about the wound to his thigh. Quote, the full charge of buckshot passed through the flesh, making a tunnel. Ugh. And another paper wrote that while the wounds were enough to kill the average man, Luke Short was expected to be well soon. In all actuality, Luke ended up bedridden for months, during which time his smoking hot wife Hattie carefully nursed him back to health. He would have a limp for the rest of his life, though. He and Wright were both indicted and charged with assault with the intent to murder. The trial, however, wouldn't be held for over a year, so both men just posted bail and went about their business. By May of 1891, Luke was feeling well enough to travel by train to Chicago and see to some racing horses. And it was there in the Windy City that Short almost added yet another scalp to his belt. He was in the lobby of the Leland Hotel when he got into it with a drunken attorney. And no idea what exactly happened between these two, 
other than the attorney, quote, accosting Short. I guess Luke Short didn't appreciate being accosted, so he removed the man from the lobby of the hotel. And by remove, I mean that he knocked the guy on his ass and took the kick at him while he was down before finally picking him up and physically tossing him out into the street. Now, Luke didn't have his gun on him when this went down. But just in case that lawyer all of a sudden got a case of the big balls and wanted to come back and do some more accosting, Short headed upstairs and armed himself. In the time it took him to go up and grab his gun, another man, an actor named William Foley, happened to enter into the lobby. Just minding his own business. Unfortunately for him, he did closely resemble the drunken attorney. <laughs> Luke, <laughs> Luke stepped into the lobby, glanced at what he thought was the lawyer, and charged at the poor bastard, pistol in hand. Thankfully, a swift-footed hotel clerk was able to get between the two men and stop what possibly could have been a damn murder on Luke's part. Definitely wouldn't have been a good look for him to kill an innocent bystander while awaiting trial for that other murder charge down there in Fort Worth. To Short's credit, he did feel really bad about scaring the hell out of Mr. Foley and ended up treating the poor guy to drinks and dinner. Meanwhile, back in Texas, the verdict finally came in regarding Luke and Wright's little gunfight. Short was found guilty, but only of aggravated assault, a much lesser charge than intent to murder, and he was fined 150 bucks. And although Luke had mostly healed up from that gunshot blast, he was starting to experience a different sort of discomfort. Something just wasn't right. He was feeling under the weather and ended up consulting some doctors. And their diagnosis was grim. Bright's disease. If you recall my early, early episode on Bass Reeves, this was the same disease that killed that legendary lawman. The great Ute chief, Chief Ure, died of it as well. So did the hanging Judge Parker out of Fort Smith. Famed poet Emily Dickinson, Booker T. Washington, the wives of Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, and the 21st president of the United States, Chester Allen Arthur, are all notable people who died of Bright's disease. And the reason that you and I don't know anybody who's had Bright's disease is because nobody calls it that anymore. The term Bright's disease was the old-timey way of describing a certain type of kidney disease. Oftentimes, patients would develop what was called dropsy back then, now known as edema. You know, your lower legs would fill up with fluid. Your face would get all puffy. You'd experience hypertension, blood in your urine. And this would eventually lead to kidney failure. At the time, there wasn't a whole lot they could do about it. Hell, even nowadays, you do not want your kidneys to go bad. But back in Luke Short's day, they still treated stuff like this by bleeding a patient or dosing them with mercury. Hot baths seemed to help some, as did a change in diet, which is probably why Luke's wife Hattie brought him to Gouda Springs, Arkansas, hoping the healing properties in the water worked their magic. But Luke was going downhill rapidly. One Kansas paper reported accurately that he was on death's door. It's a shitty thing to write about somebody while they're still alive. But I guess they were right. On September 8, 1893, while still there in Gouda Springs, Luke Short passed through that door and into his next life, the life beyond. He was 39 years old, same age as me. His poor wife, Hattie, man. A couple of days prior to Luke dying, she received word that her mother had passed away. And now here she is, parentless and a widow. Not yet 30 years old and planning the funeral of both her mother and husband. Before Luke died, he went ahead and purchased his own gravestone. A very simple affair that reads, L.L. Short. 1854-1893. If you're ever in Fort Worth, you can pay your respects at the Oakwood Cemetery. It's the same cemetery where long-haired Jim Courtright's body was laid to rest after Luke did him in. I'll end this tale on Luke short by quoting Bat Masterson, who described Luke as being one of the best-hearted men who had ever lived, and said, quote, I am proud to know Luke short. Many a widow has been fed and many an orphan clothed in this city through the generosity of this man who is, in the eyes of many, an outcast and a stranger. End quote. And that's about all I've got on Luke Short. By the way, if the name Luke Short sounds familiar, you may be thinking of the author of Western books who went by the same pen name. Born Frederick Dilly Glyden, author Luke Short wrote a bunch of Westerns in the mid to late 20th century. Some of them even became movies. I know I've read at least a couple of his books, but I don't remember which ones. If you've ever seen the old Western Blood on the Moon starring Robert Mitchum, that was adapted from a Luke Short novel. The area of Fort Worth, known as Hell's Half Acre, can be found in the present-day downtown area, just south of the Fort Worth Convention Center. If you listen closely, you might be able to hear the voices of brothels past. The location where the White Elephant Saloon once stood isn't too far north of there. I found a list in saying it was located between 308 and 310 Main Street. 308 is now home to Earth Bones, a closed-down gift boutique. 310 Main is home to the Dallas Cowboys Pro Shop, where you can buy overpriced collectibles to let the world know how much of a douchebag you are. Both of these establishments are right across the street from the Sid Richardson Museum. 
So if you're ever in this area, you can know that you're walking in Luke Short's footsteps. As always, thank you all for listening. If you like what you hear, go tell somebody. Share this podcast with friends and enemies alike. And always feel free to email me at bloodybeaverpodcast at gmail.com or go on over to bloodybeaver.com and hit that contact button. And finally, I'd like to end this podcast with a recommendation as well as an official Bloody Beaver public service announcement. First, the recommendation. I'm assuming since you're listening to this that that means you're a fan of history. Well, do I have a treat for you. I recently discovered a podcast called Texas History Lessons. What you're about to hear is not a paid advertisement of any kind. I don't know the host. He did not ask me to do this or anything like that. All I know is if you're into Texas history, give it a listen. You can tell the dude doing it, Michael, has a real passion and curiosity for the subject. And I'm loving how he's starting things off by talking about the indigenous inhabitants of Texas. I think that's something that we often forget. You know, Texas history doesn't start in 1836. People have been living here a long time. So once again, that's Texas History Lessons. And you can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, public service announcement time. Actually, it's an apology as well as a PSA. And this is an apology that I've already made privately. But I wanted to do it publicly on here. About a year ago, I released an episode called The Mysterious Death of Butch Cassidy, where I went over some of the theories about Butch possibly not dying in South America like is conventionally believed, and instead coming back to the U.S. and living to be an old man. My conclusion, ultimately, was that Butch more than likely died in Bolivia in 1908. The evidence points in that direction, and all the historians, that I could find at least, believe so as well. However, there are a lot of people who believe otherwise. One of them I mentioned on my Butch Cassidy episode, a lady by the name of Marilyn Grace. Well, Marilyn emailed me recently. I guess she found the episode on YouTube and gave it a listen and didn't care very much for how I spoke about her. I went back and listened to the episode myself, and I don't blame her. I said something very rude about her. Y'all know me. I'm always going to make stupid jokes on this podcast, and I'm going to make fun of stuff, and I'm going to have a potty mouth at times. That's likely not going to change. However, what I do want to make it a point to not do is personally insult someone. And what I said about her was meant to be a joke, but uh, it was kind of a, I don't know, just listening back on it makes me sound like an asshole. And yeah, it's one thing for me to crack a joke at the expense of John Wesley Harden or a psycho like Deacon Jim Miller, but they've been dead for a long time and I'm not real concerned about hurting their feelings. I would not say what I said about Marilyn to her face, and as such, I shouldn't have said it on this podcast. At the time, I don't know what I was thinking. A year ago, I didn't think anybody was going to actually listen to this podcast. But that's no excuse. So, while I still disagree with Marilyn's conclusions as to Bush's fate, I do sincerely apologize for my choice of words. There was absolutely no reason I should have said what I said the way I said it. I could have just pointed out how I thought she was wrong, and that's it. But instead, I was kind of nasty about it. So, Marilyn, if you're listening, once again... I do sincerely apologize. Now, I did already reply to her email and apologize as well. I'm not going to share the email exchange, but she did mention some new possible breakthroughs they might have had in the case of Butch Cassidy's remains. So maybe when she's ready, if she wants, she can break the news to me. I don't know. As far as what I believe about Butch, like I said, my opinion hasn't changed. It'd have to be some pretty strong evidence to convince me otherwise, but hey, I'm always open. Uh, by the way, Marilyn did not ask me to apologize, but I could tell by her email that my words hurt her, and I didn't want to do that. I, want, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, and it definitely was not my intention in her case. I'm a big proponent of the idea that, uh, I don't know, there's no reason two people who disagree can't do so civilly without name-calling. Too often nowadays, people say all kinds of stuff behind the privacy of their computer or phone screens, you know, comments on social media or YouTube, whatever, and they say the most petty, mean shit. And I don't want to be one of those type of people. I don't want to be an internet troll. I just watched that documentary on Netflix, The Social Dilemma, where they talk about this and you know how the suicide rates of young girls have skyrocketed since I think it was uh, since 2011, just due to the prevalence of people being nasty to each other online. I didn't say what I said with any ill intent, but that doesn't matter, I said it. But once again, y'all, I'm not going to stop being goofy and saying dumb stuff on here. That's one of the reasons why I'm doing this. A- I actually love talking about the Old West, and B, I like talking about it my way. If all of a sudden I could only do this podcast just very dryly and only share the facts and not add in my two cents, that wouldn't be any fun, so I just stopped doing it. 
but that doesn't mean I have to be an asshole about it. Which brings me to the public service announcement. And this is as much for me as it is for everybody listening. I don't get into politics on here, other than, you know, a random joke every now and then. But unless you've been living under a damn rock, then you know we're in the middle of an election here in the United States. And as a result, everybody's losing their damn minds. My advice, my urgings to all of you as well to myself is to take it easy. Turn off the TV, turn off the Facebook, the Twitter, whatever. Vote, don't vote, I don't care. Just remember that a person's political leanings don't necessarily define their entire existence. I keep hearing about families being broken up over something as stupid as what damn politician they support. Who cares who your mom's voting for? She's still your mom. Who cares if your dad's a Trump supporter or your cousin's a Bernie bro? Blood is thicker than water. Friendships are more important than a damn election. Sean Hannity does not pay your bills. Neither does Wolf Blitzer. Rush Limbaugh isn't going to come bail your ass out of jail or pick you up in the middle of the night when your car breaks down. Anderson Cooper isn't going to come tuck you in at night and tell you everything's going to be okay. So why are we letting these talking heads and politicians on both sides of the aisle cause us to hate each other? Every night I clock in at work and work next to white dudes, black dudes, Hispanics. There's even this one guy, I don't know what the hell he is. I think he's like an aboriginal. And everybody gets along. This is a history podcast. This country has been through a lot in its history. And I like to think that we as Americans are strong enough to not let an election between two grumpy old men divide us. I hope so, at least. Remember, the word politics comes from the Latin word poly, meaning many, and ticks, meaning blood-sucking insect. Whoa, dad joke coming in hot. Seriously, though, why can't we just be nice to each other? Think before you leave a mean comment on YouTube or get in an argument with your sister's boyfriend on Facebook. And I'll think next time before I say something rude about somebody on my stupid podcast. I don't know what I'm talking about. I guess I just get tired of seeing and hearing about this shit all the time. I guess I'm trying to say, and you know, once again, to myself as well, don't lose your humanity or decency just because there's an election going on. Be like Luke Short. I try to find some little good thing about all these people I cover, you know, and supposedly he took care of orphans and widows. Isn't that what the Bible says is like the perfect form of religion, taking care of orphans and widows? And try not to start no shit. And if you do find yourself in said shit, also make like Luke Short and clear leather before the other guy does. And as far as the election is concerned, I'm voting for Kanye, bitches. <laughs>